So um, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and uh, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2 um, actually go more with chapter 1. And so as the result, we covered those last week and then I cut off just a little bit early um, because we were going to jump into uh, verses 6 through however far I get this evening, 6 through 10 certainly. Um, but um, I'm going to go ahead and start. Normally, I will back up and, and read a good bit, but we're going to go ahead and start in verse 6, and uh, we're going to read to the end of the chapter because the, uh, those verses all go together. The Apostle Paul writes, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he does not, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay, so uh, we began the letter, and I've, I've titled this entire study of First and Second Corinthians together. Um, as God's dysfunctional people, because this particular church, uh, the Apostle Paul spent a year and a half there and multiple letters. In fact, as I indicated to you, 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter he wrote to them, and 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter he wrote to them. We just have those two preserved. And uh, he made multiple trips back and forth, uh, a couple of them that we're aware of, because there were just these ongoing problems there it just reminds me a whole lot of our country today. You know, there were just all of all of these uh, challenges that were there. Uh, it was a, a very, Corinth was a very wealthy city. Um, it was a trade center and uh, it was uh, very much a, a pagan city with uh, a lot of religious activity, uh, not the least of which was um, uh, cultic activity that was uh, um, immoral in nature. And so as the result of this, people were coming out of their past and not able to completely let go of their past. Now, to complicate matters, it was common in this day for philosophical and religious teachers, itinerant teachers, to move around and attach themselves to groups of followers and receive uh, stipends or receive donations from those followers and to, you know, give them their ideas concerning truth. So the Apostle Paul, in order to uh, demonstrate his integrity, never took money from a church that he had started and was currently working at. So the entire time he was in this wealthy city of Corinth, he took no money from them. But as we're going to see later in this letter, once he moved on, he encouraged them to give a donation that he would be able to take back uh, to the poor who were living in Jerusalem, because those who were uh, particularly Jews that were living in uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea were experiencing some uh, severe uh, financial challenges. So it wasn't as though he was unwilling to receive donations. He just didn't want them to think that he was a hired hand, that he was just there to get their money, right? Like a, a TV preacher that spends 10 minutes of a 30-minute program, uh, you know, giving you some sort of uh, truth that you're, you know, receiving, and then spends the other 20 minutes trying to 
tell you how you need to donate to their ministry and they're going to go off the air, the air if you don't. And if you donate such and such an amount of money, they're going to send you this little trinket or this Bible or whatever. And so, yeah, the Apostle Paul didn't do any of that. Um, but nonetheless, they had their challenges. And one of the challenges that we already ran into, and we'll see again in chapter three, was division. They had groups who used to following various teachers, philosophical and, and religious teachers, were aligning themselves with different figures in the Christian movement. So, you know, you had these that were saying, I am of Paul, which is our writer here. I am of Apollos, which was uh, a wise teacher that uh, came along and, and helped Paul out. I am of Cephas, that's Peter, you know, or I am of Jesus. Well, we're all supposed to be of Jesus, but, you know, it's kind of like in our day, and I'm not disparaging any group, so please uh, don't take me this way, but um, the, the Church of Christ is called the Church of Christ because they're focus is, hey, we, we come from Christ only. We're following that line. So we are of Christ. So all of you other denominations are not. But the reality is um, they have a history just like everyone else has a history. Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, we all have a history, right? Um, and then over time, those denominational groups change. Um, Catholicism, right? Roman Catholicism goes all the way back to the beginning but they're radically and dramatically different now than the primitive church was. So it's very similar. Uh, those that have preached against denominations have used the passage in chapter one that we've already covered uh, to, uh, to talk about the reality that we all need to be of Christ. We all need to have our, our, uh, our balance, our focus, our emphasis on Jesus himself and his teachings. Now that doesn't mean we're not gonna have our distinctives, um, Doctrinal distinctives are not a bad thing as long as we recognize that uh, this is what we believe and this is why we believe this, but there are other groups that still believe Jesus is God's son and they have different perspectives on various issues, but we can agree to disagree and still be in fellowship with one another as long as we have these same basic ideas. So the, um, as, as our, uh, our foundation um, that Jesus is divine, and uh, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead on the third day. Uh, those are, those are, uh, shouldn't be debatable. Um, but other things like, you know, what the, the second coming is going to look like and when that's going to happen and uh, issues like, you know, predestination and tongues and these different things that, that churches argue over. Well, we can agree to disagree on these. We don't have to say, well, you're you know, you're not following Jesus because you don't agree with me on, you know, dispensationalism or something. Um, the reality is we can have these different perspectives. Or baptism, there's another good example, okay? Do you sprinkle, do you pour, do you baptize babies, do you baptize adults? Uh, you know, we have a perspective on that. I believe it's a biblical perspective, but it's not the only perspective. And that doesn't mean I can't have fellowship with Presbyterians or Lutherans or Methodists as long as they adhere to this uh, these foundational truths, that Jesus is God's son, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, that you know, he ascended to the right hand of God, that he's returning someday, um, that the resurrection is a literal resurrection, not just some metaphorical you know, idea and so forth. Um, nonetheless, so he concluded that thought um, about these multiple groups and encouraging the Corinthians not to split up in multiple groups, by saying, hey, I didn't come to baptize because different folks were saying, hey, I was baptized by so-and-so or so-and-so and, -so, and that, that was part of their identity. He said, I came to preach the gospel and I came to preach the cross and to talk about the reality that Jesus died on that cross and how important that is. And as we're gonna see in a minute, that's central to the initial proclamation of the gospel, right? In fact, I mean, at this rate, it's gonna be a while before we get to chapter 15. So it took me seven weeks to get through chapter one. Um, so it may be a bit before we get to chapter 15, like at the end of the year. But nonetheless, in 1 Corinthians 15, three through five, the apostle Paul relates the earliest confession of faith, if you will. He said, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose according to the scriptures that he appeared to Peter and then he appeared to the 12. 
He appeared to James. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at once. And he says, some of them are, have passed away. And then he said, and lastly, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. This is very, very early. Um, and uh, it indicates that the basic kerygma, as, as we'll see it's called in a minute, was established within, a, within months of the time that Jesus died on the cross. This wasn't a series of accretions that came along over time where, you know, Jesus became this, this hero and, you know, he was deified and, yeah, he died on the cross, but then they started saying he rose. And you've got a lot of folks today, 2,000 years later, that would make statements like that. But it's really difficult to line up the history with that um, because even the secular history of the day uh, will see that Jesus was a miracle worker, that he died on the cross, that he was worshiped as a God. Now, of course, they didn't understand there's just one God and the Trinity and those sorts of things. This is uh, polytheistic culture. And, uh, you know, you probably had Greek mythology when you were in school, so you're aware of Greek and Roman mythology and the many gods that they were worshiping and so forth. But from their perspective, Jesus is, you know, another god that was worshiped. And this is in their secular history, right? So um, this is found, it's interesting. We would assume that the Gospels, right, they're, they're first in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, would have been the earliest documents written, but they're not. The earliest documents that are written are these letters, right? So this letter, 1 Corinthians, it's probably written in the mid-50s. Um, Galatians, which is even earlier than this, uh, was probably written in the late 40s, early 50s. Now, I will say this. Um, I know interpreters who will say that Mark was likely written in the late 40s. And from that perspective, Mark would be uh, earlier than these letters. But most interpreters want to put the Gospels uh, after the letters, or not all of them, but certainly many of the letters of Paul. So we have the, the Gospel being established and preached as Paul travels through the Roman world. This doesn't mean that the stories about Jesus were not circulating, they were. Because uh, as we look at the Gospels, we find that they're, especially the synoptic Gospels, right? The first three, it's called synoptics, and if you've ever read through the New Testament, you've had this experience. You read through Matthew. Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, good. And then you went to Mark and you're like, hey, I just read that. And I just, wait a minute, I just read that. And I just read that. And then you got to Luke and you're like, wait a minute. I just read that twice now, okay? So what we find with the, with the synoptic gospels is that Mark is kind of like this, this central kernel that both Matthew and Luke use, right? This is, this is, these are oral traditions. Before anything was written down, this, this was being passed along, okay? In church history slash tradition, Mark is said to be the teaching or preaching of Peter that was written down by John Mark, okay? So then it's understandable that Matthew uses that teaching or preaching, that Luke also uses that teaching or preaching. Luke uh, is a doctor, but he's also a historian, and, and from the... Uh, what we understand in what he says in his gospel, Luke, and the second uh, uh, book that he wrote called Acts. Luke and Acts are part one and part two of the, uh, the same story that he was writing. Uh, he interviewed people. And he went around and he talked to people. So you have some interesting detail. And also uh, Luke says that he came to give an orderly account. And when we read the gospels, we're not necessarily reading in a timeline history, but with Luke, it's probably closer to that. And then John is a completely different animal altogether. Um, John was written much later, and you know he obviously knew of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and chose not to repeat that material at all or base what he uh, had on that. So um, John is uh, very much focused on the words of Jesus, it's centered around seven major miracles rather than talking about all of these many, many miracles that Jesus did. Um, nonetheless, I don't want to get too deeply into that, but we should understand that these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote actually likely came before the, uh, the Gospels, right? So he has said that is um, 
Paul has said that he came to preach the gospel. Let's see. Let's see what he says up here. Um, he calls it the the word of the cross or the message of the cross, right? Um, he says, "For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the lest the cross be emptied of its power." For the word of the cross, or the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he says, going a couple of verses down, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So he's not disparaging wisdom. He's not saying, you know, let's all be dumb Christians and we don't need to pursue doctrine or theology or you know, look at philosophy and see what light it might shed on things. He said, no, to those who are more mature, who are grounded in this reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, um, we do preach a wisdom, but he says it's not worldly wisdom. It's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So um, let's look at that as it relates to today. The, the teaching and preaching in some churches uh, may be more doctrinal or theological. So, uh, if you were, uh, you know, if you were in a Bible church, for for as an example, um, there is uh, there are longer sermons. They're really many times like lectures, you know, 45, 50 minutes long. Um, and uh, you know, there are other churches that are that are similar in nature to this. And, but not everybody is that intellectual. And we're, in fact, we've gotten to a place now where you're here and on Wednesday, we don't do music, we don't do anything. I just teach the word for an hour. And uh, that's not something everybody can handle these days. Um, doctrine is, you know, it's kind of um, disparaged by some, discounted by some as though it's not important. Well, I said earlier, we need to establish a baseline of belief that we can all agree to, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't teach doctrine and the whys, okay? So for instance, let's go back to, you know, something like uh, election or predestination or something like baptism or, you know, these disputable matters, uh, something like uh, the gifts of the Spirit and so forth. I have perspectives on all of these and uh, I came to faith uh, as the result of the preaching of a Baptist church and went to Baptist institutions to get my education and would align the majority of my theology and doctrine with Baptists, but not in every way. Um, so I'm gonna be willing to lay that out there because I want you to, I want you to see that. I want you to understand that. Um, whatever background you come from, I want you to be able to lay that down beside that, okay? And I'm not ashamed or afraid to teach those things. But I've come to see that I can't really do that on Sunday morning anymore. Um, back when we started this church, I used to preach 50 minute sermons on Sunday. And, you know, we had, we had people that loved it and they were like, man, yeah, that's awesome. Let's, you know, do more. But I also came to see that, especially when we moved our service from Sunday night to Sunday morning, that people were like, uh-huh. Mm, yeah, my stomach's growling right now. <laughs> Time is it? That's why I got the big shot clock on the back wall back there so that it will tell me what time it is and I can, I can be more timely. Um, so what we're doing on Wednesday is m more doctrinally and theologically oriented, but still I'm trying to be practical uh, for you all. Um, I want you to leave here with more of a desire to get into the word yourself. I want you to, and again, I've told you guys this, if you go to our, uh, our it's called flock note, right? Like a flock of sheep, flock note, right? Lifewell.flocknote.com. You can go there and you can become a part of various groups that will receive texts or email, depending on what you choose to get. But I have a daily Bible that I send out, uh, and I send out a chapter. In fact, I, I recommended, I sent out a chapter today. We're going through Deuteronomy now, and I recommended another chapter because I want you in the Word. I want you to explore the Word yourselves. Um, and it's discouraging to me, honestly, that there are fewer people that are interested in that these days. Um, some years ago, we had uh, a former member that, um, 
somebody, I, I was wondering why this person didn't come anymore. And uh, somebody related the comment that this person made and I recorded it in these notes at the time. I, I don't care about all that history and maps. When I go to church, I just want to feel better. <laughs> okay, well, that's, you know, when you're a Bible preacher, that's kind of like getting hit in the gut, you know. Sorry about the, the history and maps deal there, um, you know. But honestly, I take things to heart. I, I know that uh, you can't force uh, content on people. You need, to, you need to draw them in. You need to give them a desire to want these things. So we're going to do more of that, and we do more of that on Wednesdays, but not even to the degree that I used to do on Wednesdays. So I'm not getting into the doctrinal debates and so forth, that, uh, the biblical debates uh, you know, and all these passages. Um, I'm trying to be practical for you guys on Wednesday as well um, because I want you to see that wisdom is practical in nature. Wisdom is not just esoteric. It's not theoretical. See, that's the problem with some Bible study is that it's just erudite, esoteric, theoretical, not practical in other words, right? So there are people that know a whole lot about the Bible but it doesn't seem to have really much impact on the way they conduct their lives. But I want you and I to see that the Bible is the word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So I want it to, to get across to you, right? So we want that wisdom to be practical. Now he says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Um, we don't learn facts contained in the Bible and just stop there. I remember some years ago, uh, there was a couple that were uh, attending our church and they were attending another Bible study on, uh, I don't remember, like Tuesday or Thursday, or might've even been Wednesday. And this particular pastor was really, really focused on the history and the biblical history and just delving into a great degree of detail. And I can see some value in that, but only if you are wanting to learn more about the Bible so that you can be a Bible student yourself and read the Bible and understand it. But this was to such a depth that they might have been going to a seminary class or something. And I was, I was asking this young lady, I, you know, what are you getting out of that? Oh, I, you know, I don't know. It's, so it can go either way. You can just you skim along the surface and really never get below just kind of a basic message or, you know, encouraging words and so forth, or you can focus so deeply on the facts of the Bible that you miss the story. So uh, I can't remember which one it was. One of the two Bruce Lee movies, um, Enter the Dragon or Return of the Dragon. I always get the two confused, right? But Bruce Lee is talking to this, I know, I'm bringing up Bruce Lee in a Bible class, I'm sorry. But this is, this is so good. Bruce Lee is talking to this, to this student and, and he said, he said, the finger point to the stars. He said, do you look at the stars or do you look at the finger? He said, you don't look at the finger, you look at the stars. See, but this is what we're doing. Uh, Jesus said this. He was talking to Bible scholars of his day. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. That's the finger that's pointing. And he said, it is they, the scriptures, that testify of me. That's where the finger is pointing. So we read the word of God so we can see where the finger is pointing. We don't make it uh, an end in itself, all right? Um, in other words, in the Bible, God is still speaking today. He's doing something, and that's what we need to see. You're here tonight. I believe you chose to be here. You have your reasons, but I believe you're here for a reason, and I believe that God likely has already begun to speak to you and to try to bring across the message that he has for you this evening, and that's going to be the case anytime you intentionally put yourself before the Bible or a Bible teacher that's, that's really trying to bring that forth, right? That's the wisdom from God. Now, it's a secret wisdom, a hidden wisdom, not because it's some sort of Gnostic uh, idea of, of knowledge or wisdom, but because 
the people of the world are not familiar with it. You don't find it in what is known as natural theology, right? So we have revealed theology, right? And we have natural theology. And the revealed word of God is what we have in the scripture that is the result of God's interaction in human history. But that had to be experienced by human beings, and then it had to be recorded by inspired writers, and then it had to be preserved. That's the Bible, right? That's what uh, interpreters will call special revelation. There is natural revelation. You can look at nature, and it is abundantly clear that there's a creator. There's design that's evident but it's also abundantly clear that there's problems, that there are flaws, that it is not a perfect world, it's a fallen world. And so I'm using the term fallen world that comes from special revelation, that comes from scripture. It's obvious there's design and it's obvious there are problems um, that, uh, that have crept into that design. So somebody posted this earlier today and I'm not gonna remember the name, but apparently, when a, uh, a foal, right, uh, a baby horse is born, they have this, this covering of uh, skin over their hoofs that keeps them from basically ripping the uterus of their mother apart when they're born. And then once they're born and they get up on their feet, that covering, once they start using their feet, comes off so that their hooves are there to be used. Wow, that's, you know, there, there's just, there's so many millions of things that are like that that point to design. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to dance around that. It's, it's like you have, to, you have to go to college and you have to have atheist teachers that tell you, no, 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 there's no design. This is just a big mess. And it all came about as the result of sheer chance. But the impression that you have, if you just look at nature, is overwhelming. There's design here. Okay. And as I said before, you also see that th there's something else that's going on here, right? There's law of the jungle, dog eat dog. It's rough out there. So there's something else that's going on as well. We can see these things revealed in natural, in the natural world, and we can develop a natural theology as the result of that, right? But then there's special revelation, and that special revelation comes from the Word of God, where the will of God is revealed. That's the secret wisdom we're talking about right? It's, it's not hidden um, in that uh, there's some sort of uh, special Bible code that you need uh, to get a hold of. I, and by the way, I, I just, in, in, in passing, I, I cannot stand this word code. There are so many books called something, something code, the this code, the that code, the Bible code. The, why, why are there so many codes? You know, it's, I guess it sounds mysterious, Maybe it goes back to the Da Vinci Code or something, right? And it's like, oh, well, that sold a lot of books. So, you know, Christians can come up with some books with the word code in them as well. And, but it's not just exclusive to, you know, to Bible uh, topics. There's, uh, there's a guy, and I really respect him. Uh, his name is Jason Fong. He writes about, he's a doctor, he's an MD, and he writes about fasting. And uh, he's got two books, and one's called the uh, the Obesity Code, and the other one's called the Diabetes Code. And I'm like, dude, seriously, do we have to have all these codes? Why do we have to call our books codes? You know, and this goes all the way back to it's like you can't read the Bible straightforward. No, there's a special code, and you've got to know Hebrew and you've got to know Gematria and how these letters actually are mathematical in nature. No, you don't. You don't. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay. Um, if you have an honest heart and you go to the scripture and you ask God to speak to you, you can open the scripture and you're not going to automatically understand all of it. But as I said, you're here tonight because I believe God's brought you here. There's a message for you. And if you go to the word of God, honestly, you're going to find that he wants to speak to you, right? Um, in John chapter four, and this is one of our founding verses for this church. Um, Jesus said, true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The truth is the objective real that we have here, right? <coughs> At its root, 
Something that is true is what aligns with the reality. Something that is false does not align with the reality. Now, let me tread gently here without uh, being mean or, or attempting to be offensive. But we have in our day people that are convinced uh, concerning certain aspects of their personality that do not align with the reality, right? So some years ago, um, Sigmund Freud kind of laid out some basic ideas that really have served as a foundation, at least for discussion in psychology ever since then. Freud said, and I don't think that these categories are followed very carefully any longer, uh, especially in the wake of the, the DSM. I think we're at the DSM five now, four, five, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, Behavior. But Freud looked at people who were having psychological difficulties and he said there were those who were neurotic, neurotic, okay, might've heard that term, neuroses. And there were those that, that experienced uh, psychoses, right? So neuroses is far more common. This is uh, a variety of what we would today call emotional or behavioral problems that uh, come from people simply not being able to deal with their reality. It's just they're overwhelmed. So years and years ago, you might have had someone who would uh, have said that they uh, experienced a, a mental breakdown, right? Um, when I was working with, I worked with young people some years ago in psychological uh, facilities and I worked for the, well, I did a, a group home for a while. I worked for the Psychiatric Institute of Fort Worth. I don't know any of these organizations exist any longer. This has been some years ago. Uh, I worked for Charter Hospital. And most of these kids were dealing with um, an inability to handle their reality, right? Um, so a lot of times the way people manage that is to medicate, right? They take illegal drugs or they take prescription drugs and that can get them back then. Um, people's insurance were, you know, especially uh, adults insurance were handling their adolescence problems and they would put them in a psychiatric facility. These were things that, that Freud would have called neuroses. It's just like, I just can't handle it, right? You know, when you just wanna scream, that type of thing. Or today, you know, people that experience, uh, for instance, panic attacks or, um, you know, fits of rage or whatever, they, this would be, these would be examples of neuroses, right? It's just, we're faced with certain challenges and we don't know how to handle them and we quote unquote freak out, right? Those who have what we would call a psychological break from reality, who once were called insane, simply alter reality, okay? So instead of saying, I can't handle it, you know, this person says, uh, I'm Superman, I can handle anything, and literally believes that, okay? And so there are those who identify with certain other identities that are not, strictly speaking, anything that you could verify scientifically with them, in their genes, in their physiology or whatever. This is a break from reality. And this has become increasingly common. And rather than treating people who have these, and these are genuine uh, issues. This isn't just pretend, right? I'm not saying that someone is pretending, someone who's in this position is pretending to be Superman. I'm saying this is how people come to manage their inability to deal with their reality. And so they actually come to believe whatever it is. And rather than help them with wisdom, right? With the truth, right? Here, let, let's align you with the reality, okay? Your physiology, your genetics, your chromosomes don't line up with your psychological perception or your identity. Let's try to help you to understand how you can do that, right? Um, but rather than do that, what we have is we have a culture that simply wants to go along with everybody's psychosis. 
and the assumption is that's going to help them. And I don't think that does help them. Um, that seems to be um, caring, and on the surface I understand it, but in the long term, it's not merciful or caring if you allow someone to continue to go down a road that is ultimately a departure from reality and is ultimately self-destructive. What we have to do is we have to be willing, we have to have the, uh, the fortitude to say, this is not God's plan for you. God has a better plan for you. And not in a rejecting way, not in a hateful way, not in a, well, you're crazy. What's wrong with you? That's no, okay? but in an understanding way to be able to bring the truth into someone's life. So what we're saying is, is that scripture is very practical and it should, it should lead us to be able to talk to people about these matters as well, okay? Um, that's the truth. Truth fundamentally is what aligns with reality, okay? Um, there is an objective reality out there. There's not my truth and your truth. There's the truth. And then there is your perception, your opinion, right? And whether or not you align with that truth. None of us has a perfect grasp on the truth, but that doesn't mean that there's not truth, right? And that's why we continue to be seekers of truth. That's why we look at natural revelation. That's why we look at special revelation. We want to be able to understand that, apply it to ourselves, and then relate that to other people who are dealing with a variety of, of their own issues. But then there is this idea of spirit, right? Spirit and truth. So the spirit is that God is a, an actual being, all right? At the risk of sounding, I don't know, sci-fi, God is an entity, right? Uh, he is, uh, he's real. He's not a concept, in other words. He's not a, God's not an idea. God's real. He's a presence. He's the power that is behind the universe. He's the mind that is behind the universe. Uh, and, you know, very quickly, one of the things that I've related to people before is um, something has always existed because nothing does not result in something. I mean, you just think about it. Nothing. Nothing. You can't even think about nothing because even the idea of nothing is something, right? So absolute nothingness. How can something come from nothing? Well, something doesn't come from, something has always existed. So it's either the universe in some form, right? Some type of matter and energy, or it is whatever produced the universe. Well, since the evidence, once again, you want to talk about truth, reality, the evidence is the universe has not always existed. The universe began to exist at a point in time. Scientists will call that the Big Bang, okay? 13.73 billion years ago, the universe came into existence. From nothing? No, from some set of infinitely powerful and based on the fine-tuning of the universe, infinitely intelligent being, essence, entity, right? So the most plausible explanation for the origin of the universe and the origin of you is an infinitely powerful, incomprehensible intelligence. We call that God. He exists, but he doesn't exist as a material being. He's not subject to the same laws that matter and energy are subject to. He's above that. He's beyond that. That's how he could bring that into existence with resources that we don't understand, that are outside of uh, the spatio-temporal world that we live in, right? That's God. But he's spirit. If I'm going to access God, then I have to worship him in spirit. How does that work? Well, that means that I have a spirit. And later in this chapter, you know, you heard me read it just a moment ago, but later in this chapter, we're going to read about that. See, God created you in his image. And fundamentally, that means he created you with a spirit. You have the ability to access God if you apply faith, right? 
there is a, a sense. So I can remember back in the 70s, you don't hear this anymore, but my mom was all about this back in the 70s. Um, she was a, a flower child, I guess. Um, my mom used to talk about ESP. Do y'all ever remember hearing ESP? All the old people remember the ESP. He's like, what ESP? The young people are like, oh. Extrasensory perception, right? Woo! Right? But the reality is that's, you know, a secular way of talking about having a sixth sense, right? Beyond your five senses. Your spirit is that sixth sense, right? And faith is how your spirit operates and accesses God. And so if I'm going to worship God, if I'm going to understand his wisdom, then it can't just be a dry intellectual exercise, reading the Bible, and then going my way. There has to be an openness to my heart and mind to receive what the Lord is saying and to try to discern what he wants me to do, right? And the inability to do that is an indication that your spirit is still dead or numb. You can use a, a, you know, a metaphor there and needs to be brought to life. If it's all boring and dry and doesn't make any sense to you, you may well be in a position where you need to be reborn, regardless of how many times you visit a church, or whether you grew up in church or what your experience has been. Jesus told uh, a Pharisee and a religious teacher of his day, he said, you can't even perceive the kingdom of heaven unless you've been reborn. You can't even sense it, see it. You don't even know what it is unless you've been reborn. And the Greek word there, and this is John chapter three, of course, and the Greek word there is anothen, and it means to be born from above. You're not gonna get it. It doesn't make sense to you at all. It's just line on line, words and words, religion, religion, Bible, Bible, okay, okay, yada, yada, yada. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the old Charlie Brown, whenever the adults talked, the kids would talk and, you, you know, they would talk. But when the adults talked, it was wow, 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 wow. You know, the teacher would talk, and the kids are sitting there. We would never hear, if you watched all the old Charlie Brown cartoons, you would never hear the teacher say anything or any adult say anything. Adults were always going, wow, 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 wow. And I think this is what happens to a lot of people that go to church. It's wow, 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 And the preacher's up there going, wow, 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 And you leave and you're like, I don't know. I don't know what that was. <laughs> so it's either, you know, just bad teaching or you might need to be reborn, all right? So what I'll say to you, is every time you pick up a Bible, you need to ask God for understanding. And maybe it'll just be one thing that you get, right? Like I said, you know, you, a lot of you in here, you get my, my, daily, my daily Bible readings. The reason I sent you an extra one today, um, Isaiah 26 was the second one I sent, is because Deuteronomy chapter two, I, let's just be honest, if you read it, it's a beating. Some of the Bible is like that. It's so history, right? And it's detail and it's, you know, it's these lists of names and you're just like, what? This is, no, there's nothing practical here for me, right? But it gives you an understanding that it's rooted in history. So when you study the Bible, you, you get that as well. You're not always going to get like some individual practical thing for your personal life if you're studying the Bible as a whole. But I do believe that if you will be willing to pay attention, that the Lord has always got a message for you. He's always got something to say. Further, he speaks in nature. When we see this, uh, Jeremiah was a prophet and he's like walking along. This is chapter one of Jeremiah. And it's obvious that he sees certain things in nature and God just strikes him with a, a word or perspective. Hey, Jeremiah, do you see that? And he's looking and he sees a pot, right? This is, you know, ancient times and it's a big pot and it's sitting on a pile of sticks that are burning under it and it's tilting away from the north and it's boiling. Jeremiah, do you see that? Yeah, I see that. It's just a pot. But there was a message there for Jeremiah. 
I'm going to bring a nation in from the north that's going to cause my people to boil, right? And that's exactly what happened. Um, he sees uh, an almond tree. Now, the translation is not helpful uh, in English because you don't see the, the uh, affinity between these words. Um, he sees an almond tree, and then God says, I am watching over my word to perform it. And so you and I go, huh? What does that have to do with an almond tree? But in Hebrew, the word almond and the word watch are very similar. Shaked and shoked. So it was kind of like the watching tree. That makes sense? If you're paying attention, God is speaking all the time. But you need to be in the scripture to understand whether that's your imagination or your perception or your emotional you know, attachment to certain things or whether that's actually the Lord speaking, right? So that's what we're talking about. The, the wisdom of God is available to you if you are going to avail yourself to what God is saying. Then he says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Um, yeah, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus if they understood that he was the Son of God. But it's interesting that he showed them all of these miracles and they were still unwilling to see those as signs pointing to that reality. Um, uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of things that I said here. I'm just going gonna, gonna to go down to uh, William Barclay's translation of 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 9, because I'm running out of time here and I want to get through a little more of this. So we just read uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 9, and this is uh, Barclay's translation in his statement. True, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. This is Barclay translating 1 Corinthians. But wisdom, which does not belong to this world, nor to the rulers of this world, whose extinction is inevitable. But we speak the wisdom of God in a way that only he who is initiated into Christianity can understand. A wisdom which up to now has been kept hidden. A wisdom which God foreordained before time for our eternal glory. A wisdom which none of the leaders of this world knew. For if they, have, if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it stands written, things which eye has not seen, which ear has not heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, all these God has prepared to them that love him. And then he makes this comment. And I think this is, this is very valid for you and I to kind of lay down as a way to understand how the scripture is broken down. Barclay writes, this passage introduces us to a distinction between different kinds of Christian instruction and different stages of the Christian life. So it's not all one thing. In the early church, there was quite a clear distinction between two kinds of instruction. There was what was called kerygma. Say kerygma. Okay, so if I'm a visual person, I will much more likely remember someone's name if they're like wearing a name tag because I see their name written. If someone tells me their name, I have to stop and say it again. And if I can almost see it written in front of my eyes, I will much more likely remember their name. Whereas if I meet somebody just first time in a room and then go on, I'm like, oh my gosh, what was their name again, <laughs> right? So kerygma derives from a Greek word, but it's spelled K-E-R-Y-G-M-A, kerygma, right? That's the initial proclamation of the gospel. That's the message of the cross, the kerygma. It means a herald's announcement from a king. That's the origin of the, of the word. And this is the plain announcement of the basic facts of Christianity, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day to overcome death and to bring forth our justification. So that's the basic announcement. That's the kerygma. But then there was what was called the Didache. Say Didache. D-I-D-A-C-H-E, the Didache. This means teaching, and it was the explanation of the meaning of the facts which had already been announced. Obviously, we're moving from the Kerygma, chapter 1, that the Apostle Paul has focused on. He said, hey, we preach this to you. Now, we will preach wisdom, we will preach this Didache, but we need to make sure that you're not led away from the basic 
understanding of the gospel, the kerygma, right? Um, so we began the letter talking about the kerygma. The Apostle Paul writes, here's three different verses in chapter one, actually two in chapter one, one in uh, verse two of chapter two. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us we're, to us we're being saved is the power of God. That's the foundation, the basis, the kerygma. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. There it again is again, the message of the cross, the kerygma. And then in verse two of chapter two, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You've got to be firmly established in that before you move on. That's the fundamental fact, right? Now, in the early church, it might interest you to know, uh, there is an extra biblical document called the, called the Didache. It was called the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. However, that document is actually, it's very early, but it's actually somewhat later than the, uh, the time frame that would line up with the uh, life of the 12 apostles. So while it may reflect, and it does reflect uh, teaching that is found in scripture, it is not explicitly written by the 12 apostles, but it is a very old document called the Didache. Um, if you'd like to access that and take a look at it, you can go to earlychristianwritings.com. Just make that one word, earlychristianwritings, like one word, Com, okay, here's chapter one of the Didache, and if you have ever read the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to recognize this. Okay. Chapter one, the two ways and the first commandment. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two ways. The way of life then is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, love your neighbor as yourself and do not and do not do to another what you would not want done to you. And of these sayings, the teaching is this, bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies and fast for those who persecute you. For what reward is there for loving those who love you? Do not the Gentiles do the same, but love those who hate you and then you shall, have, you shall not have an enemy. Abstain from fleshly and worldly lusts. If someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also and you shall be perfect. If someone impresses you for one mile, go with him too. If someone takes your cloak, give him also your coat. If someone takes from you what is yours, ask it not back, for indeed you are not able. Give to everyone who asks you and ask it not back, for the Father wills that, uh, that to all should be given of our own blessings, free gifts. Well, that, that's the Sermon on the Mount, okay, right? But it's obvious these early Christians, and this is, we're talking, this is second century. It's very early. They were taking this seriously. This is why the Roman Empire was overwhelmed with Christianity. It wasn't because it was a powerful political movement. Now, again, I'm not trying to, to be hateful or disparaging. Christianity grew because of the character of Christians. They were persecuted for the first three centuries of Christianity. Islam grew at the edge of the sword. So in the early days, um, Muhammad was very, very peaceful. And he raised somewhere in the vicinity of a hundred plus followers. But then it became a political movement and it became militant and Muhammad raised an army and suddenly Islam grew like wildfire because it went through uh, all of the, the Middle East and began to take over. That's how it's always grown. Now, Later, Christianity started doing the same things, right? We see that some of the missionary movements in Christianity uh, were militant and military in nature, but that's not primitive Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. Christianity grew because Christians were so much different than the world, right? They loved their enemies. They loved their neighbors. They cared for people that the Romans despised. The Romans worshiped strength, okay? Um, Again, I'm hitting all these, you know, potentially uh, uh, sensitive issues today, but uh, Romans commonly, if the, uh, the woman gave birth to a child that had a birth defect or gave birth to a child that was the wrong gender, sorry ladies, but many times if a woman gave birth to a girl, there was a hill outside of Rome that they just took those babies and left to die. They didn't want them. It's not what we want. Guess what? Christians would take those babies and 
that care and would care for them, right? I mean, look at what Jesus did. You weren't supposed to go anywhere near a leper. They didn't understand leprosy, right? And they assumed that it was what we would call communicable, right? If you touch a leper, you're going to get leprosy. It was not entirely that. There were a variety of skin diseases that were classified as leprosy, but a leper if they got anywhere near you, had to cry out that they were a leper so that you would stay away from them. Jesus touched lepers. That's Christianity. That's original Christianity. That's why Christians were so much different. If we saw that kind of Christianity more often today, rather than Christianity that seems to overly or overtly align itself with a particular uh, set of political ideals, then the world would be different. So again, I'm gonna get myself in trouble all over the place today. Uh, we're almost done. There are, there are hundreds of immigrant children that have crossed the border that have no one to care for them. Do you care for them? Are we gonna scream about them illegal aliens over there? I'm sorry, those are kids, man. Let's, let, let's stop all this rhetoric. Uh, you know, sure, there, there are criminals that are coming over and certainly we should protect our borders and so forth. These are kids, man. These are kids. Nonsense. The governor of Iowa said, we're not going to take any of them. They can just, you know, I'm sorry, ma'am. Your politics may largely agree with mine in many respects, but I just don't agree with you at all. Let's care for these people. They're human beings. And most of them walked hundreds of miles so they could have a better life. I know, I know. See, I've been conservative and liberal all over the place. But see, if you follow Jesus, you're just going to get in trouble with everybody. That's what it amounts to. Okay? Christians cared for those people. Kids in cages. See, I told you. It was this president had that many, but now this president has it. Why are you even talking? Why are they in cages? Why are they even being kept like this? Why aren't we caring for these people? If we were Christian people, that's what we would be doing. And that's what we should be doing. If we're believers, we don't go over to Mexico to do a mission trip. You can go to the border and do a mission trip right now. Right now, I don't know, you know how that's gonna work out legally and so forth. But the reality is there's all sorts of opportunities for us to live out our Christian faith sans any sort of political affiliation. I don't care about the left. I don't care about the right. I don't care about Democrats. I don't care about Republicans. I care about following Jesus. I care about loving people and helping people. And I'm not doing it perfectly. But if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to live out our creed, our, our name here at this church, life well, living life well, then we need to shine the light of Jesus and we need to love people wherever they are whatever their political affiliation or their sexual orientation or their background or what they're into, we're going to love people. But remember, loving people doesn't mean just letting them go along and continue down some path of self-destruction, right? Love sometimes means tough love, means speaking the truth in love, means caring for people, but also being willing to, you know, be honest with them. So that's the kind of people we need to be. That was the early church, right? Um, so, well, just a little tantalizing uh, statement at the end here. I've got one more minute, and uh, this, is, uh, this is what he concludes with. This is a restatement of Isaiah 64.4. The apostle says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Wow. That's amazing. Um, this is, this is how it's uh, stated in Isaiah 64, 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. That's what I want for you. I want something that is beyond your imagination. God has a plan for you that is greater than anything you have for yourself. It's better than anything that you have planned. It's mind-blowing quite literally. And sometimes we think, well, you know, if I started doing the will of God, it would just be boring, or I'd hate my life, or I'd have to give up all these things, or I'd have to change the way I think. But it's all worth it. He created you. 
He knows what's best for you. So why do we keep following these foolish desires? Why do we keep going down these destructive paths? Let's look at that promise. Here's how it's stated in the NLT, and then I'm done. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Amen? Amen. All right.